0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. And you sound a little...
0: I do. I'm getting over some crud, so I have an interesting voice. I could sing some torch songs this week. Yeah. But uh, I won't. Instead, I'll just record things and people can enjoy a completely different timbre to my voice. Or not enjoy it. That's fine, too.
1: Yes. Well, and on on the subject of enjoying or not enjoying, we've had several two-part episodes lately. We keep
0: accidentally picking things that have so much depth that it's hard to get them in one. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And and some people love two-part episodes and some people hate them. Yeah. So if you hate two-part episodes,
0: I'm sorry. We're... Likely going to be dialing back on them in the coming
1: yeah. weeks and months. Yeah, we'll, we'll choose some things that are more conducive to, to <laughs> like being in one 30-minute episode. Could be
0: encapsulated.
1: Right. Today, we are going to talk in our first of two parts about Audre Lorde, who called herself a, quote, black feminist lesbian mother poet warrior. It's an awesome string.
0: Yeah, it's a lot of adjectives. It is. Or a lot of nouns lot of that of all nouns. go together. <laughs>
1: a lot of descriptive nouns, but... For a lot of people, she's best known for like the poet part or maybe also the feminist part. She showed a great deal of promise as a poet really early in her career and attracted the attention and support of other uh, really prominent poet- poets like Langston Hughes and Gwendolyn Brooks and Adrienne Rich. And she went on to just write prolifically and win numerous awards for her writing And on top of that, she was way ahead of her time on all kinds of social fronts, including feminism and gay rights and the sexual revolution. And she was just unapologetic in her view that you just can't address issues like sexism without also examining their relationships to racism and homophobia and class struggles and all of these other nuances and complexities that affect people's identities and how they're treated. Well, and she also struggled
0: with depression for a lot of her life. Uh She wrote about it as well. Her books, The Cancer Journals and A Burst of Light, chronicled her experience with breast cancer, which was, as you can imagine, not always a fun and sunny affair.
1: It was not at all that. Uh, and that's something that we'll talk more about in the second part uh, of this two-parter. In a lot of college classes and introductions to collection of her work and that sort of thing, Audre Lorde is presented as sort of this larger-than-life Black lesbian feminist icon, somebody who deeply believed in the power of language and drew from multiple aspects of her own identity, including her ethnicity, her race, her sexual orientation, and her gender, to fight for equality on every possible front. And identity was really at the heart of her work. And she felt that each person had to truly understand their own identity to be able to really experience and relate to the world. Um, over the next two episodes, we'll be talking about the life that led her to these views and influenced her creative work. And so in the first part today, we're going to talk about her childhood, her early life and her college years. And then part two, we'll pick up with her relationship with a man named Ed Rollins, who was the father of her two children. And that will take us also through the end of her life. And as often is the case, even with two episodes, this will not be an exhaustive Audrey Lord exploration.
0: No, there's I I think in um any time you're doing two or less episodes on a topic, you're never going to hit everything. No. You just can't.
1: If you do want it, I'm going to go ahead and 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 pitch this now and I'll say it at the end of the next episode also. Uh if you do want a much more exhaustive view of the life of Audrey Lord, there is a biography of her called Warrior Poet uh that is quite thorough and extremely well sourced. So,
0: so there you go. If you want more, if you're already eager,
1: mm-hmm. pick that up.
0: So to talk about her, we really need to talk about her perspective and how it started really uh, with her parents, who were named Frederick Byron and Linda Gertrude Belmar Lord. They were immigrants from Grenada in the Southern Caribbean. Uh, and her father had actually been born in Barbados, though.
1: They moved from Grenada to Harlem, New York in 1924 during the Harlem Renaissance. And in addition to seeing a huge amount of artistic and literary and political work from the African-American community at the time, Harlem had also become home to a really growing community of black immigrants from elsewhere in the world, including a sizable influx of people from the Caribbean. And the Lords
0: immigrated on the advice of one of Linda's sisters, uh, who had also moved to the U.S. In Grenada, Frederick had been their town's first police constable, and later he bought and managed a store. So he was a respected and successful person there. And they sold that store and most of their possessions so that they could afford to buy passage to the U.S. And their hope was that they would make more money here in the U.S. where we are uh, than they could at home. And that then they would kind of save that money and then go back home with it.
1: Right. But once they arrived, they unfortunately did not find the plentiful work and good pay that they were hoping for. Byron's experience back in Grenada wasn't enough to overcome the fact that he was both black and an immigrant. So they really had a hard time finding employment. They were facing racism and discrimination wherever they looked. And they finally wound up getting jobs at the Waldorf Astoria. Frederick worked as a laborer unloading trucks, and Linda worked as a maid, which was a job that she had to pass for white to be able to get.
0: When the hotel closed, Frederick got a job pushing an apple cart, and Linda continued to pass as a white woman so she could get another job as a maid, letting her employer believe that, in fact, she was Spanish. She kept this job until Frederick, who could not pass for white, uh, picked up her paycheck for her one day because she was sick, and her employer, upon discovering this, immediately fired her. Hard to even say those words.
1: That's, there's a lot of this story that is, is hard to say. Uh, the, the Great Depression came shortly after that. And Audrey's parents reconciled the, themselves to the idea that it just wasn't going to be feasible for them to go back to Grenada for a while. And in fact, they never were able to move back.
0: So Audrey was raised by immigrant parents who didn't feel like they were at home where they lived. Uh, Her mother especially considered Grenada and not New York to be her home. Linda spoke of Grenada often to her daughter. She made it sound beautiful, romantic, and idyllic. And, you know, it overlooked uh, many of its problematic issues of colonialism and race. So it was definitely a very romanticized view of it that Linda was portraying to her kids. And all of this fueled Audrey's sense of separateness and identity.
1: So the Lords started a family. And Frederick started studying real estate in night school, uh, eventually starting his own reasonably successful real estate business. The first of Audrey's two older sisters was born in 1929 and the second in 1931. Audrey herself was born Audrey with a Y. Uh, It's later spelled with no Y. But Audrey Geraldine Lord on February 18th, 1934.
0: And as the baby of the family, Audrey naturally got a lot of attention. She also had a number of physical problems. She actually didn't speak until she was about four years old. And when she did start to talk, she actually had a stutter. Her eyesight was poor and she had to wear corrective shoes. So she was the baby of the family and was, you know, really attended to in a lot of ways.
1: Her sisters, who already had a close relationship to each other, Uh, grew resentful of all the attention that she was getting, both for being the youngest and because she had other special needs. Hey, Ollie, we have some exciting news. Yeah,
0: I am wildly excited and uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry
1: at art. (laughs) Yeah, you sounded so calm and it's not a calm situation at all.
0: you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts,
1: or wherever you get your podcasts. So Audrey grew up feeling distant from her sisters and kind of excluded from this world that the two of them shared with each other. But she
0: also felt uh, a degree of distance from her parents as well. Both of them were quite strict and emotionally pretty reserved. And she saw from a very early age her mother's own racism. In Grenada, she had lived within a racial hierarchy in which people with light skin were much more valued than people with darker skin. And as someone who could pass for white, Audrey's mother was in a very privileged class in Grenada. Uh, and she looked down on people who were darker than she was, even though her husband Byron was in fact darker.
1: This sense of being better... Uh, also affected how the Lords lived in the United States. African-American music and dance that her parents considered common were banned from the house. And all of
0: these elements together really made Audrey feel like an outsider in her own home and also in the rest of the outside world. And combined with that, she was also a bit rebellious and willful as a child. Uh, She would push back against her parents' rules all the time. Uh, You know, the boundaries they would try to set up for her as a child, she would buck against. And this makes her later role as an activist, constantly challenging social norms, pretty unsurprising.
1: Yeah, the foundation for that was laid very early on (laughs) in her life. Uh, Her personality was still rebellious and sometimes even obstinate by the time she got to school. And that's also when she dropped the letter Y from the end of her first name. Uh, That happened during penmanship class. She just didn't like the way that it looked there. And so she just took it off.
0: And like dropping it below the line, perhaps. Nope. Uh, her sense of being an outsider continued as she grew up. And when she was about 11, uh, the family moved to another part of Harlem that was at the time mostly white. And they were actually the first black family on their block. And Audrey was the only black student in her Catholic school. And she was not happy there. She didn't fit in and she was teased and ridiculed uh, by her peers because of her race. So she never really had, like, that sense of belonging or community anywhere.
1: Yeah, not at that point. They, uh, the kids in her school made fun of her hair, and they told her she smelled bad. And it was just all kinds of things that, that people were saying was, were because she was black. And all of it made for not a happy experience at all. And eventually, uh, as a result of the harassment that she was facing at her school, her parents let her apply to Hunter College High School, which is a school for academically gifted students. Uh, It still exists today, but at the time it was an all-girls school, and Audrey started going there in 1947.
0: While she was still in the minority there in terms of race, she was uh, much more among peers academically speaking. She fit in better, and she was able to begin building a community of female friends around her. And being part of this female community was something that would continue to be important to Audrey for the rest of her life.
1: Audrey had been reading and reciting poems since she was really, really young. And sometimes she would even communicate in poems. She would recite a poem that expressed what she was feeling or thinking rather than using her own words. And when she was studying at Hunter, she also started writing more of her own poetry and sharing that work with other girls, which is another thing that became a lifelong theme with her. And
0: she became part of a tight-knit group of students that came to be known as The Branded. Uh, Among other things, they met before school to read their poems to one another. And uh, Audrey was the only black student in the group. Most of her black friends still lived in Harlem and they went to
1: other schools. She also had her first poem published while she was at Hunter. She had learned about sonnets by reading the work of Edna St. Vincent Millay, which she loved and we love. So uh, that's very exciting. Um, She wrote and submitted a love sonnet to the school literary magazine, and the magazine rejected it. The note that came back said that she should not aspire to being a sensualist.
0: And Audrey's interpretation was that the faculty advisor didn't like what she had said in the poem, not that the poem itself wasn't good. So she sent it to Seventeen Magazine, which accepted and published it in 1951.
1: It paid her for it. (laughs) So she got paid. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, in addition to the fact that she had been published before she even got out of high school. She started to question her sexual orientation while at Hunter also. Uh, She started to have crushes on female classmates and teachers. She also had a close and physical but not sexual relationship with a girl named Genevieve, who tragically committed suicide in 1950 when she was just, just shy of 16 years old. After Genevieve's death, Audrey was really grief stricken and felt horribly guilty about the whole thing. Really, really sort of soul searching about whether there was something she could have done to prevent it from happening.
0: And in her later teens, she dated both men and women. And all of the people that she dated were white. Uh, She mostly kept her romantic relationships with girls a secret. But her parents knew that she was dating white boys and they were not happy about it. When she was 17, she started dating uh, a white boy named Jerry Levine, and this was a huge source of tension between Audrey and her family.
1: Audrey graduated from high school in 1951, and she had wanted to go to Sarah Lawrence College, but her parents couldn't afford it. Sarah Lawrence is and was then very expensive. Uh, and her father had had a series of heart attacks and was no longer in good health. Uh, but Audrey felt like that they could have made it work if they had wanted to and that they were deliberately not supporting her education. This plus years of strained family relationships combined made her really, really want to get out of her parents' house.
0: And so she decided to get a job and put herself through Hunter College, the college that was affiliated with her high school for gifted students. She got a night shift job as a nurse's aide at a hospital. Just no easy job. So no, she really wanted out. Uh, she moved out of her parents' home after a huge argument with her sister, during which her mother had threatened to call the police. And Audrey viewed this as burning her bridges and just starting a new part of her life on her own.
1: And I think this worked out to be more difficult than she was expecting it to be. She really struggled as she started college because the break with her family had wound up being harder on her than she expected. Uh, Her father's seriously ill health was also uh, a, a big strain to her. Her relationship with Jerry, which she'd always felt kind of conflicted over, started to unravel. She finally lost her job one day after not showing up for work, and her father had another heart attack. All these things together prompted her to go into therapy, and she would be in therapy at various points for most of the rest of her life.
0: And then in 1952, uh, right before she turned 18, Audrey discovered that she was pregnant and she underwent an illegal abortion.
1: Audrey found herself less at home at Hunter College than she had been at Hunter High School. You know, at the high school, it was an an all-girls community community. Uh, this is not the case with the college. She didn't feel like she had the, the close-knit community of support that she had had and enjoyed having in high school. She started going back and forth to Harlem to attend meetings of the Harlem Writers Guild. And in the fall, she dropped out of Hunter entirely and moved to Connecticut. She worked for a little while at an electronics company, which was a job that exposed her to both dangerous chemicals and radiation, before deciding to travel to Mexico. A friend's fiance, who was a painter, had lived there and... And hearing the stories about it prompted her to want to go there herself. So she
0: arrived in Mexico at the age of 20. And at first, she lived in hotels in Mexico City, and she enrolled in classes at the National University of Mexico. Then she started to meet friends of friends whose names had been given to her before she left New York. And one of these was Frida Matthews, known as Freddie, who lived in Cuernavaca, home to a lot of creative expatriates. Audrey moved there after a visit and commuted back and forth to class.
1: I'm not sure how long this drive would have taken at the time. Google Maps thinks it's more than an hour today. So she was dedicated to the idea of both being in this community and staying in school. Yeah. Her time in Mexico really set the stage for a lot of her later life. She wrote really prolifically and kind of stretched her ability as a writer. She also became part of a community of women and had her first really public relationship with another woman. Her name was Eudora Garrett, and she was a journalist who was 27 years older than Audrey was. Audrey had been in relationships with women before, but it was in Mexico that she really began to think of herself as a lesbian.
0: Eudora was also the first woman that Audrey had ever met who had had a mastectomy after breast cancer, and she chose not to wear a breast prosth- prosthesis, uh, which was a choice that Audrey would also make in her own life later on. So it was uh, likely influential, even though at the time she probably wasn't thinking of it as such. So, do you want to take a moment to have a word from our sponsor? Yes, I do.
2: The future is closer than you think, and it all starts in the palm of your hand. You may have heard the news. 5G is coming. But what does that really mean? How will it impact me? In this new iHeart series, This Time Tomorrow, presented by T-Mobile for Business, join me, Oswald Oshin, and my co-host, Cara Price, as we walk you through the true revolution in mobility that will change the way we interact with the world around us. From environmental science to law enforcement, entertainment, healthcare, and travel, innovation is coming. Join us as we explore how this revolution could impact your life, and hear just how close we are getting to a more connected future, full of possibilities in the age of 5G. This time tomorrow, presented by T-Mobile for Business, is now available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: And now let's get back to our discussion of Audrey Lord. Audrey went back to the United States, and the next year went back to Hunter College. Back in the States, she went through the 1950s in a pretty closeted life. She did become part of the lesbian bar scene, and continuing this theme of being an outsider, most of the bars were owned by white people and had a predominantly white clientele. So she didn't really... she was kind of an outsider in that context. She also didn't fit exclusively into either a butch or femme identity, which the bar scene at the time viewed people who didn't go into one of those buckets uh, with a lot of suspicion and derision. In uh, late
0: 1957 or early 1958, Audrey began seeing a therapist due to loneliness, uh, poor sleeping, and feeling frustrated with her own emotional barriers. Her therapist died unexpectedly, though, in March of 1958, just before the anniversary of Audrey's friend Genevieve's death. And she became deeply depressed and sought further therapy for a depression that she herself described as nearly suicidal.
1: Audrey was able to finish school, though, and in 1959, she got a B.A. from Hunter College and entered Columbia University. She got a Master of Library Science at Columbia in 1961, and she went on to become a librarian. She became the only black person working as a professional in the Mount Vernon Public Library in New York. And with this job, she was able
0: to move into her own apartment and have a secure professional and financial life. And this gave her a lot of freedom, which she had always been craving. And she had a number of intense emotional and physical relationships. She developed a social circle of other writers and activists. And her life at this point was sort of a cycle of late nights with friends and partners, followed by caffeine and amphetamines the next day to stay awake. Uh, she continued her amphetamine use until she became pregnant with her first child. So it really did become quite habitual.
1: Yeah, and she was also becoming an increasingly visible presence in the feminist community. Uh, second wave feminism hadn't really gotten its start quite yet. That was still to come a little bit later. But there were still many feminist thinkers and, and writers and speakers, and she became a more and more prevalent one. Although this term had not been coined yet, and it wouldn't be coined for another 30 years. Her thoughts on feminism were really deeply rooted in the con- the concept of intersectionality, which is the interlocking and overlapping patterns of discrimination based on race, gender, class, sexual orientation, all sorts of other facets of a person's identity. Um, intersectionality is a theme that's come to the forefront of the feminist movement again recently. You can listen to our colleagues on Stuff Mom Never Told You Talk About It, and the recent episode is Solidarity for White Women, which also talks about Audre Lorde.
0: Uh, So that is the end of part one on Audre Lorde. And then in the next episode, we're going to talk about how her feminist and political views led her to becoming a wife and mother and her career as a teacher and a poet that followed that. So there's more to come on Audre Lorde. Do you have
1: listener mail for us, Tracy? I do have listener mail. Fire away. I have two pieces of listener mail. They are both about our Mendez versus Westminster podcast. Uh, the first one is from Colleen and Colleen says, Hi Tracy and Holly, I just finished listening to your podcast on Mendez versus Westminster and I really enjoyed it. I grew up in Southern California and never really learned about that part of California's history. You mentioned the schools for the Mexican-American children didn't have cafeterias. And while I can't speak for that time, today it's very common for kids to eat outside at picnic tables at all schools, public and private, although not near the smell of manure. I went to three different private schools from kindergarten through high school, and none of them had cafeterias. It very rarely rains and is generally moderate temperatures. The few days a year, it did rain. We had to eat in the classrooms and hallways. I didn't realize this was unusual until recently when I moved to a colder and rainier climate. Thank you so much for all of the interesting podcasts. Keep up the good work, Colleen. We got a couple of notes about the presence of cafeterias. Yeah. Um, so thank you for sending that. I had no idea.
0: Yeah, I mean I think we both grew up in areas that would have needed them.
1: Yes. Well and like my I think my parents' generation often schools were close enough to people's homes that there were schools that didn't have uh cafeterias because kids would walk home and have lunch at home. Um not everywhere, but some places. I think that's less common today, uh than before. But yes, thank you for that. I have another one following that short Uh, clarification and this is from Emily. Emily says Hi Holly and Tracy. I enjoyed learning about Mendez versus Westminster. I grew up in Orange County and I never knew that those events ever happened. It was darkly funny to me that the Mendez family got the asparagus farm from a family that was suffering because of another frequently glossed over part of California history, Japanese internment camps. I found that to be also kind of, Yeah. yeah, to go on. There is so much racial tension that still goes on in Southern California. In white communities, Latinos are seen as gardeners, day laborers, nannies, and house cleaners. If a white suburbanite has some intense yard work to do on the weekend, he might say, I don't think I can do this on my own. I think I'm going to go by the Home Depot and pick up some Mexicans to help me. There will be Latino day laborers hanging around the parking lot of Home Depot so they can make some cash. I just don't know what to make of that situation. There are illegal immigration issues that go into that, a lack of long-term employment for those men, and then the attitude of going to Home Depot to pick up some people that are now commodities like bags of fertilizer except more helpful. I just wish everybody would have the equal opportunity to be successful and respected. Anybody that says the U.S. is a post-racial society is deluded. I wish we could learn more about California's transformation from being part of Mexico to a state in the United States. It is not difficult to be reminded that Los Angeles is ex-Mexico, but in school we're never taught about that legacy in detail. I don't want to belittle how important the civil rights movement in the South was, but to students in Orange County, it's 3,000 miles away and 50 years ago. Let's learn about our local history, too, so we can be sensitive to all of the issues that are still with us today. You guys are awesome. Thank you, Emily. I would like to say that Southern California is not the only place where day laborers exist. Yeah, as a, as a commodity.
0: Yeah, that's still pretty common here as well. Yeah, and I, I know in other places. So yeah, uh, I couldn't speak holistically for the entire country, but I'm I know in Georgia, Florida, and even northern climes, mm-hmm. I've seen or heard of these the same situation happening.
1: Right, right. I live down the street from a Home Depot. So. I used to. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I agree that there is a giant confluence of uh, ethnicity and lack of economic opportunity and law all coming together uh, and would probably be material for many more podcasts. Could be. We will see. If you would like to write to us, uh, about this episode or anything else you can. We were at com. We are also on Facebook at facebook.com slash stuff, and on Twitter at history. Our Tumblr is mistinhistory.tumblr.com and we are also on Pinterest. If you would like to learn more about something we just started talking about today, you can go to our website, put the word feminism in the search bar and you will find how feminism works You can learn all of that and more at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
0: This episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class is brought to you by lynda.com. You can learn it at lynda.com, an online learning company with more than 77,000 video tutorials that teach software, creative, and business skills. Membership starts at $25 a month and provides unlimited 24-7 access to top-quality video courses taught by expert instructors with real-world experience. Listeners of Stuff You Missed in History Class can try lynda.com free for seven days by visiting lynda.com slash historystuff.
2: I get past the fluff to what's real. We go there, and it's fun, pretty crazy, and very revealing. Listen to Let's Be Real with Sammy J on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Available now from iHeart, a new series presented by T-Mobile for Business, The Restless Ones. Join me, Jonathan Strickland, as I explore the coming technological revolution with the restless business leaders who stand right on the cutting edge. They know there is a better way to get things done, and they are ready, curious, excited for the next technological innovation to unlock their vision of the future. In each episode, we'll learn more from the Restless Ones themselves and dive deep into how the 5G revolution could enable their teams to thrive. The Restless Ones is now available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts.